sermon today is going to come to us from Acts chapter 15 and verses 1 through 31. Now, this is a long and extended section, so to speak. It means it's a lot of verses. And as a result, I'm not going to attempt to cover it all in one sermon. I would inevitably end up taking some themes and giving them perhaps enough time, but missing out entirely on others. So this will probably be, I haven't decided yet, the first of two or three sermons on this first Jerusalem assembly, this first general assembly of the church. But before we come to the word of God and dig into it, let's go to the God who gives us this word and ask for his assistance. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we are so thankful that you raised up apostles. You took ordinary men of flesh and blood, men with feet of clay, and you used them to do extraordinary things. You, Lord, took fishermen and you used them to create a kingdom in the midst of the Roman Empire that eventually would overcome it. The light would overcome the darkness. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't do these things in secret. You did them openly. And then you left us a reliable record of these things. We thank you, Lord, for this work of Luke, this solid history that tells us of how the church continued to expand under your supervision through Christ working in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us that the church and its work continues to this very day. Although Acts ends at chapter 28, the story of the church continues on, and we are part of it. And the same Holy Spirit who animated and empowered the apostles dwells within your people today. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember we are part of this story, and therefore help us to learn from the successes and the mistakes of the church in the past. Oh, Lord, I pray now that you would open our eyes, be with us, illuminate us, and help us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 31. Invite you to read along with me. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 1994... The year after I was converted, became a Christian, some leading evangelicals and some conservative Roman Catholics got together and they signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, or ECT as it was called for short. Now, this document was the brainchild of a Protestant by the name of Chuck Colson and a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Father Richard John Newhouse. Colson and Newhouse were friends, and they were concerned at the rapid decline of morality and Christian influence in the United States. And they were concerned also that Protestants and Catholics were not working together on the mission field, but were often working against one another, particularly in Catholic nations where the Protestants were actively persecuted by Roman Catholics. They argued that it was time for Roman Catholics and Protestants to set aside their differences and to cooperate, to work together in evangelizing the world and fighting in the Western world in particular for the Christian worldview. And when they did this, a host of academics, they invited men to come and sign this declaration that they had crafted. And many evangelicals, particularly academics, came and did so. I remember leading men like J.I. Packer and Oz Guinness and Bill Bright and Pat Robertson and so on. They all came and they eagerly signed the document. But four men in particular did not sign the document. And they began working tirelessly to prove that actually signing this document, rather than being a good thing, was a serious error. Those men were John Ankerberg, D. James Kennedy, John MacArthur, and R.C. And they explained 
that the reason they objected to the document was not because they were enemies of cooperation and they didn't think that people should get along, but rather they objected to it because they felt that serious theological differences still remained between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant faith, that there were significant differences of belief. And in particular, they pointed out that while this document, ECT, said that they agreed that we could only be saved by believing in Jesus, the document did not affirm, could not affirm, that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. And they pointed out, quite rightly, that the Roman Catholic Church still affirmed that they believed that salvation was by faith in Christ and our good works. So salvation is by faith plus works for the Roman Catholics. Now, at the time, as I said, I'd only been converted for a year, and I was newly converted to the Reformed faith. But given that R.C. Sproul was the man who had convinced me to become Reformed, he'd opened up the scriptures, clobbered me over the heads with them, and I said, yes, okay, God is a sovereign God. I was inclined, even though I didn't initially understand all of the issues, I was inclined to trust him that this was a serious problem. But was my trust misplaced? Was it really a serious problem. I mean, isn't carrying the gospel to the world so important that perhaps we shouldn't get all hung up over theological differences and theological language? We need to ask ourselves the important question, would the apostles have refused to work with people who confessed that Jesus was Lord just because they thought that you had to do good works in order to be saved? The answer to that question is yes. The apostles would have refused to work with anybody who did not confess that salvation is by faith alone. In fact, it might amaze people today, but that is exactly what we just read about in these verses. You remember that Paul and Barnabas had gone on a missionary journey, and it had taken them through Cyprus and then on to several cities in Galatia, including Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and they had preached the gospel and they had planted churches throughout that region. And they had spent a good deal of time also now working with the congregation in Antioch. We read in verse 28 of the preceding chapter, chapter 14, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, We need to remember, sometimes, I know we read the book of Acts, and we figure that the church consists of Paul and whoever is with him. And that's basically it. And then maybe some guys waiting to hear, how's it going, Paul? But that's not the case. We need to remember that there were thousands and thousands of believers at this point in time. The congregations were growing, not just growing amongst the Gentiles, growing in the dispersion, but also growing within Judea, growing in Jerusalem. The largest churches, for instance, largest congregations were in Jerusalem at this point in time. Now, fortunately, many of the Pharisees had been converted. They were, after all, the most religiously conservative, the most believing in the Old Testament amongst the Jewish population. And many of them believed. Many priests also believed. And these were people who had followed the Old Testament laws zealously and who had spent their entire lives keeping themselves separate from the Gentiles. 
Now, they knew, and Jesus even pointed out, that the Pharisees would cross, you know, oceans in order to make one proselyte, to bring in one person to the Jewish faith from the Gentiles. But in doing that, what had to happen was a Gentile had to become a Jew in order to become part of the faith. For a Pharisee, it was absolutely critical that this person be circumcised, that they stop eating unclean things, that they begin to observe the Saturday Sabbath, that they come up to the temple when it was commanded, and that they cut themselves off from the Gentile population who were unclean. And several of these Jewish Christians, many in fact, had gone out to the churches, probably some of them sent in order to help grow the church, others going by themselves just to do good work, so to speak. They had traveled to these churches outside of Israel, and they had begun teaching the Gentile Christians that while it was really good that they confessed that Jesus was Lord and that you could only be saved by faith in the Jewish Messiah, that now these Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and that they needed to begin observing the ceremonial law with its dietary restrictions, with its holy days, and all of those other things. Now, the men who went out and preached this other gospel were called Judaizers. And note how strongly they taught these things. It wasn't just a, it would be wonderful if you would adopt our traditions. You know, one of the things that's happened for many Christians is that they've gotten involved in Messianic Judaism. In fact, one of the odd things is there are now more Christian Messianic Jews than there are Jewish Messianic Jews in the United States. And they love to observe all of the feast days and nobody... As a Jewish friend puts it, he said, nobody dances like Messianic Christians dance, and so on. And when, he didn't mean that in a great way, i got to admit. But in any event, they really enjoy the traditions. But these men were saying, no, this is more than just cultural assimilation. What is going on here is if you do not become circumcised and observe the ceremonial law, the law of Moses in its entirety, not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but all of the laws, then you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And keep in mind that these Judaizers weren't just a few fringe kooks. Don't think that for a second. These were people who had significant standing and connections within the church. In fact, they were significant enough for Peter and Barnabas to be intimidated by them. And at one point, these Judaizers were probably the majority in the church. And Paul, unfortunately, is going to keep encountering them throughout his ministry. This isn't just a one-time deal. Even after the Jerusalem assembly, they continue to pop up in various places. Now, Paul tells us about what happened with these Judaizers in his letter to the Galatians, a letter in which he addresses this Judaizing heresy and shows why theologically it's wrong in depth. If you will turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Galatians. Remember, as soon as you've gotten through 2 Corinthians, Galatians is the next book. And I want to start reading this historical account that Paul wrote to these new Galatian believers who were being afflicted by Judaizers themselves, starting in verse 11. And he says this, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, James, that is the leader of the church, the man that we read about standing up in Acts 15 and making that eloquent speech, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. 
And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, he's declaring that here we have Peter the Apostle, the same Peter who in Acts 10, you remember, had received that vision from God while he was on the rooftop. He'd seen that blanket descending with all of these unclean animals that he had never before eaten. And heard the voice of God declaring three times, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. What God has made clean, let no man call unclean. The Lord had made it clear to Peter that the dietary restrictions that had kept Jews and Gentiles separate, those standards of ceremonial cleanness, they were at an end. And consequently, he was able to go into the house of Cornelius, the centurion, and to do something that no faithful Jew would have done, which is eat with him, to sit at his non-kosher table and eat non-kosher foods. The very act of entering into his residence, sitting on his furniture, touching his utensils, his bowls and plates and so on, would have, under the ceremonial law, have made him unclean. He would never have done it. In fact, we need to really understand the mindset of the Jews. It's hard to get our hands around it, but it wasn't just ceremonial uncleanness. They began to see the non-Jews as dirty. These are dirty people. You hear it kind of in the contempt that David shows towards Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine. All these unwashed people who, now, they weren't literally unwashed, For instance, uh, the Philistines were a seafaring people descended from the Greeks. They were probably fastidious about cleanliness in some senses. But they were seen as unclean. They were seen as people you didn't want to touch, you didn't want to have anything to do with. They would make you ceremonially unclean. And we need to remember in the Old Testament, that was true. They did make you unclean if you touched them, for instance. You couldn't go into worship. But now everything has changed. And it's impossible for the church to move forward unless the Gentiles are acknowledged as co-heirs with Christ without having to become Jews. And Peter knew that. He had gone, you remember, back to Jerusalem in Acts 11.2 after these events, and people had heard he had gone into the house of this centurion, this Gentile, and so they called him on the carpet. In Acts 11.3 we read, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. He told them about the sheet experience. He told them how he had been called to go to this man, that Cornelius the centurion had had that vision, and then he had had a vision, and the Lord had brought the two together so that the gospel might be proclaimed. And he said what had happened when he began to preach the gospel, starting in verse 15 of chapter 11. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And you remember how we talked about how this was a sign that the gospel was now moving out to the Gentiles, that the Holy Spirit was empowering them for evangelism as well. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed, he's speaking of Jesus, of course, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And yet, after that event, we see Peter intimidated enough that when people had come from the church in Jerusalem up to Antioch, he stopped having table fellowship with his fellow Christians because they were of Gentile descent and because they were uncircumcised. He and Barnabas caved in. They stopped eating with them. And we'll see throughout Acts how very important table fellowship is, eating with one another. They broke table fellowship, and that would seem to indicate also that they stopped observing the Lord's Supper with them, the very sign of our communion one with another. Now, I need to point this out. It's very, very likely that Paul's letter to the Galatians was actually written before the Jerusalem assembly, which would have made it the first of Paul's letters. Everybody acknowledges that's probably the case. And that's likely because Paul undoubtedly would have referred to the decision of the assembly in the letter if it had already happened. Additionally, it's unlikely that Peter and Barnabas would have reverted to not eating with the Gentiles and agreeing with the Judaizers after contending with them so strenuously in the assembly occurring in Jerusalem. It's almost impossible that that was the case. So the Jerusalem assembly happened after the book of Galatians was penned, after Paul had admonished Peter to his very face in front of the people. And this becomes a major argument within the church, the developing church, and it is vitally important. This is a question that is not a secondary or tertiary, a third-order issue. This is not like a discussion of whether or not we can play musical instruments in a worship service or what kind of the even more tertiary question of what kind of musical instruments we should be playing or even something more important like does the church have authority to create and observe holy days or something even more important than that such as does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith? Or perhaps even a question like, if women should be ordained to the office of deacon. This is actually a more important question than all of those. Because while all of those, remember this, are important issues, we don't necessarily say that people who disagree with us on those issues are necessarily unsaved. But here, the Judaizers are contending that unless these Gentiles become circumcised, they cannot be saved. This is literally like the medieval Roman Catholic Church's contention that without their baptism, you could not be saved. Outside the church, there is no salvation, and they specifically pointed towards Roman Catholic baptism as the moment of salvation. Without that, no one could be saved. And that's what these Judaizers are saying. Unless you are circumcised, it doesn't matter how strong your faith in Christ is, it will not save So the church clearly begins to dispute these matters. And I mean, hotly, they go round and round. Luke is a master, incidentally, I hope you picked this up, of understatement. He says, they had no small distension and dispute with them on this matter. Wonderful little phrase there. Paul, of course, finds out the debate has spread beyond Antioch and has infected the Galatian churches that he and Barnabas had planted. And so he writes to them, going back to Galatians again, in Galatians 3.10, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? These were people who were being persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on to say, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. It's not being genetically a Jew or being circumcised that makes you a son of Abraham. Even though the covenant was originally given to Abraham, to be a descendant of Abraham is to believe the promises of God, particularly and most importantly that promise regarding the Savior of the nations, the blessing to the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jews. Now, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're not told how long this no small dissension and dispute went on, but I believe, I seriously do, that it probably lasted for months, if not years. And you will find, generally speaking, for the church to gather, to hash out a subject, to really deal with the heresy that's been spread and so on, in an assembly like this, the issue needs to have been a boiling for quite some time. For instance, we had something very similar to this in the PCA with what was called the Federal Vision Controversy. Now, those who belonged to the Federal Vision camp believed in baptismal regeneration. They strongly urged that Christians should believe that baptism is literally the labor of regeneration. That When you baptize a child, at that moment in time, the Holy Spirit always grants them the thing that's signified by the water. And if they fall away later, it means they were only conditionally elect. They created this category called conditional election, which, if you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith is an abomination. They talked about our initial justification and then our final justification. And they said, well, yes, your initial justification is by faith. Your final justification is by faithfulness. Good works were necessary for final justification. And then they conflated faith with faithfulness. So that sola fide was effectively denied. You had camps developing within the church on this issue. Those of us who opposed the federal vision were called quietly, mostly, once in a while on blog posts openly. We were called sola fideates because we believed in sola fide. And books and papers were written, I mean, book-length treatises were written on this subject by men like John Piper and R.C. Sproul before the church finally said, well, maybe we should get together and try to decide who's right and who's wrong. And so although I've been dealing with this literally in various forms for, well, 13 years, but although we've been going back and forth over this, the church didn't finally get its act together and decide we're going to settle this until 2013 on the floor of the GA. And this was the one time I heard R.C. Sproul, incidentally, speak at a General Assembly. He stood up and he delivered a masterful speech. It was one of those speeches that was so good that after he was done, everybody was like, well, I think that's it. (laughs) Nobody else needs to say anything, you know. The master has spoken. And it carried the day. Unfortunately, the church then, after having proclaimed that the federal vision was not in keeping with the Westminster standards, was contrary to scripture, after having said that as an assembly, what happened? They didn't carry out a single act of discipline. And making the declaration that something is against the law isn't effective unless you actually put it into action. In other words, for instance, brothers and sisters, if I put up a ton of speeding signs on this road, all of them saying speed limit 25, I could stagger them at five foot lengths. 
But if I never, ever, 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 ever sent a cop out to enforce the speed limit, would anybody pay any attention to them? In fact, everybody would know. It's really ironic. There are all these signs, but they never speed trap there. Go as fast as you want, man, honestly. So you see the signs flipping around. This is so cool. It's like being in a tunnel. But you utterly ignore it. And that's what happened in the church, unfortunately. The men who were practicing the federal vision are still practicing the federal vision today and still disseminating it. So I believe this probably went on for some time. There was this vigorous debate between the Judaizers and men like Paul and Barnabas who were contending for faith alone. And it finally ends when the Antiochian church decides to ask the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to gather so that all the members of the church would come down to Jerusalem, all the teaching elders, the apostles, and so on. They would come to a decision in regard to this matter of the ceremonial law. Must the Gentiles be circumcised? This is a critical issue. Now, I want you to note how they do this. We have this issue that's dividing the church of central importance, something that deals with salvation itself. And they don't say, let's let Peter decide. After all, he's the first pope. Okay? Peter, what do you think about this? Well, I think, well, there, Peter's spoken. It's done. That's not what happened. It wasn't even the apostles get to decide for us. The 12 of you, you come up with an answer and and you tell us what to do. And it certainly wasn't every member gets to decide and practice what they believe. Every individual within the church can have their own particular belief about this doctrine. It isn't even every single congregation gets to decide whether they're going to be Judaizing or non-Judaizing. They are a connectional church, and therefore they understand they are all linked together, and therefore they must decide together. They must come to a common decision. And they don't, finally, and this is of paramount importance, decide, okay, well, we're just not getting along on this issue, so let's split. We'll split the church. They don't do that either. It was their resolution that because there can only be one true teaching on matters of salvation, that they must resolve this issue and then enforce their resolution. Either salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, or it isn't. So they hold an assembly, a council, the entire church comes together to decide. They debate vigorously, and we'll talk about what they debate next week. But note what happened as the disciples, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, are traveling down to Jerusalem. They come from Antioch, and as they go through the churches in Phoenicia, that would be modern-day Lebanon, and then Samaria, northwest of Jerusalem, they recount how the Lord has been working. They talk about his miracles amongst the Gentiles, how the faith is expanding. And in one sense, they are repudiating the central argument of the Judaizers. I want you to see that through evidence. The Holy Spirit is working in the midst of these Gentiles. He's doing signs and wonders in their midst. That couldn't be happening if these guys aren't saved. All right, so the work of the gospel is advancing. And we see growth amongst the Gentiles. Are we really going to put, you know, the brakes on the expansion of the gospel by insisting that Gentiles start becoming Jews and making it almost impossible for communion to occur, to go back in time to a place before Christ came? So they get to Jerusalem and they do the same thing and they talk about the work that God is doing. The church is expanding 
And they don't place this emphasis, and I've said this before, but it's something that comes up in the book of Acts again and again. It's not, look at what we've done, say Paul and Barnabas, but rather, see what the Lord is doing through us. See the way that the Holy Spirit is continuing that work of enlarging the church so that it is now becoming the universal church. That one church made up of all believers from every tribe and tongue and race, all of them saved in the same manner that we were saved. Now, I want to give you some applications. I'll try to be brief. The first is this. The church needs the courts of the church. We need, we need sessions. We need presbyteries. We need assemblies to come together and to decide these matters and to be men who are willing to make hard decisions and then enforce them. We need to, if the word says it, we need to proclaim it, no matter how it goes against the culture, either the culture out there or the evangelical subculture that we're part of. No matter how many toes it steps on, if it's the truth and it's taught in the word, then we need to proclaim it. And we need to remember also that the truth is not something that, generally speaking, one man and one man alone arrives at, like Joseph Smith or the cult leaders. Rather, in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. It's one of the reasons why on October the 20th, I'm going to drive all the way down to Columbia, South Carolina, and spend a couple of days apart from my family, something I don't enjoy. At a general synod, synod simply means getting together, sin, it comes from the bringing people together, so on. But it's important. If you will, turn with me in your Trinity hymnal, which has the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back, and specifically to page 866. All right, 866 in chapter 31. This is what the Westminster Assembly, which was an assembly, wrote regarding synods and councils and their importance. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. And it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God, the government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. And they stress the idea that when a council meets and they come to a decision that is consonant with the word of God, in keeping with the word of God, then that rule that they make is to be obeyed, not because of the power of the assembly, but because of the power of the word that they are proclaiming and that rules it. There needs to be, brothers and sisters, councils of the church, but there also needs to be debate. There needs to be a seeking after the truth when there are issues where the church is divided. Now, why do I say that? I say that because in the church there can never be, on central issues, things that deal with salvation, a let's agree to disagree, or issues of faith and morals that are very important. We can't have part of the church that says homosexuality is okay, and part of the church that says, no, the word of God says it's a sin. We cannot be divided upon those issues and just agree to disagree. We must determine what the Word of God says. And then when we have determined what the Word of God says, we must cleave to it. And it should be our calling as Christians not to see how close we can get to the culture in our practice, 
but to see how close we can get to the word in our practice. And we must never think that things that deal with the gospel aren't important, aren't worth arguing, aren't worth even dying for. Do we forget that the reformers went to the stake over the issue of sola fide? They were willing to lay down their lives for the contention that salvation is not by faith plus works, but by faith alone. And then finally, one of the things that we need to see is how God here preserved the unity of the church. He did not and would not have been content to have a Gentile church and a Jewish church separated from one another. With the Jewish church thinking that the Gentiles were unclean and refusing to have anything to do with them and cutting them off. Now, we need to learn from this because, brothers and sisters, we are prone to re-erecting the barriers between various races and groups. It's our tendency, always has been. Now, I'm going to, I may just go ahead and trouble some of you, but I'm going to go ahead and trouble anyway and stir the pot. A pastor, a southern pastor, told a story while preaching actually on this subject of the cleanness and uncleanness of the Gentiles, told a story that stuck with me. He was an older pastor, and he told a story from his childhood. His father was a pastor, and their church was mostly kind of sort of integrated. They had Jewish Christian friends who would come to the house. They would have meals with them. But whenever the matriarch of their family, who was, the way he described it, a figure kind of like the dowager from Downton Abbey would come to, and she was where all the money was vested, so everybody was kind of afraid of her. When she would come to the house, no black people could visit. They were absolutely, once again, they were cut off. That included people from the church. Now, as a young boy, he did not understand what was going on, but it was because she thought they were unclean. He said, my grandmother once told me, he said, don't touch that, a black person touched it. And that he would become unclean by contact with it in some way. It happened. But, unfortunately, instead of saying, we need now to get to that place that Martin Luther King talked about, where people are no longer judged by the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, and that we acknowledge that all Christians are sinners saved by grace alone, standing on exactly the same level before God, together in one body, one family, we are once again re-erecting barriers. One of the most painful things that occurred to me in my life is I had a dear brother, he's still a dear brother in Christ, but somebody I met in Fayetteville, I thought he would make an excellent elder in the church. He visited several times, but could not come to our church. Why? Because we're too white. We were too white. And I was just heartbroken that at this point in time, we still divide off into our little enclaves. Brothers and sisters, there ought to be no division between Christians. None. We're all saved by the same Holy Spirit, applying the same work of Jesus Christ who died for all of us. There are no side A or side B Christians. There are no class A or class B Christians. There are just Christians. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear Matthew Henry's Sabbath meditation and take it to heart. He said this, those that have their hearts purified by faith are therein made so nearly to resemble one another that whatever difference there may be between them, no account is to be made of it. For the faith of all the saints is alike precious and has like precious effects. And those that by it are united to Christ are so to look upon themselves as joined to one another as that all distinctions, even that between Jew and Gentile, and I will say black and white and yellow and red are merged and swallowed up in it. Brothers and sisters, we must commit that. 
and live it out, regardless of what foolishness the culture is engaged in. We are all one in Christ, no divisions. And someday we will all stand before him in that assembly. There will no longer be any divisions. Not even the ocean will divide us. We will have a sea, but it will be a crystal sea. We can stand together as we worship the Lord together with him. And how I long for that day. Let's go before the Lord. God, our Father, we thank you that in Christ there is now no separation. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation was not dependent upon our works or what we eat or don't eat or what we wear or don't wear or whose house we do and don't go into, but is dependent solely upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and upon our faith that unites us to him. Thank you, Lord. For if we were to be saved by works, none of us could be saved. All of us would fall far short of your standard. Help us then, O Lord, not to begin in faith and then continue on in works. Help us not to think of ourselves as more righteous than others. Remind us, O Lord, where we would be without you. And, O Lord, help us to rejoice that you loved us so much that even when we were unworthy, totally unworthy of salvation, you sent your Son to die for us. Help us to proclaim that truth promiscuously to the entire world. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.